Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. Attention, attention, what you are listening to is a test of the ZM broadcast service. Repeat, this is only a test. What you are listening to is not your standard FM broadcast. ZM Radio is far superior than your average FM broadcast because it has a Z in the title. To learn more about ZM Radio, tune in your FM receiver to 88.9 FM every Saturday from 4 to 6 p.m. ZM Radio, radio with your host, Ziba Z. That's me, Ziba Z, your host, every Saturday, 4 to 6 p.m. on ZM Radio. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Vic- Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on television. She's been on Dateline, Investigative Reports, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, The O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and she was just on Montel Williams' show last month. She presented her own 90-minute PBS special last year, which is called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi there, Lloyd. We have a great show. I know you've heard me talk many times in the past about Christine Varney. She's our guest tonight. I met her back in the late 90s and was in awe of the terrific work that she's been doing in privacy because she was really one of the real pioneers to try and help companies to deal with the emerging issues of the Internet. Let me give you a little bit of background on Christine. Uh, Christine is an internationally known attorney and privacy expert. She joined Hogan and Hartston in 1997. She rejoined them after five years in government service. She joined them to head the firm's Internet Practice Group, and this group provides full-service assistance to companies doing business globally. She's had incredibly uh, important clients, including eBay, DoubleClick, The Washington Post, Newsweek, Interactive, uh, Dow Jones and Company, AOL, Synopsys, Compaq, Computer, uh, Gateway, Netscape, the, Alliance, the Liberty Alliance, and Real Networks, and many more. Christine has been really instrumental in the founding of several industry self-regulation associations including the Network Advertising Initiative and the Online Privacy Alliance. And she spent many years trying to create ever-evolving Internet best practices policies. She's uh, received a lot of media attention for the caliber of her her work, including a recent mention in Chambers USA 2005, which lauded her for her consistent excellence and the strength of her client relationships. Even more exciting, Christine's achievements um, really were were lauded when she was a commissioner for the Federal Trade Commission. She was a leading official on a wide variety of Internet and privacy issues at that time. And she was an innovator as well. She led the government's efforts to examine privacy issues in the information age. Prior to even becoming a Federal Trade Commissioner, Christine was assistant to the President of the United States and Secretary to the Cabinet. She was the primary point of contact for the 20-member Cabinet, and she was responsible for overall coordination of several major issues and initiatives between the White House and various agencies. And remember when I went to speak at that White House, that's when she was there. 
Before working at the White House for the Clinton administration, Christine practiced law with Helgen and Hartson, who she's with right now again. She also served as general counsel to the 1992 Presidential Inaugural Committee and general counsel to the Democratic National Committee from 1989 to 1992. Christine lectures internationally on all sorts of issues of privacy and corporate concerns, and she's involved in an international dialogue on the comparative political processes. Anyway, there's so much more I could tell you about her, but she's a regular contributor to publications including Newsweek, Antitrust Magazine, and Wired. She's called all the time by the media, and I'm just thrilled to have her all the way here from uh, D.C. tonight. She's terrific. Christine, thank you for joining us. Well, Mari, thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk with you because you are really the expert on privacy, so I love talking with well, you. Well, I, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from you. So, <laughs> so <laughs> It's a mutual in, admiration society. Exactly. Christine, you have had such an exciting, rich, and colorful background in politics, government, legal services, everything. My goodness, you, you'd think you're 200 years old for a but you're really not. You're younger than me, and you've done terrific <laughs> things. So let me ask you a little bit about each of these exciting uh, experiences that you've had. What was it like being general counsel to a presidential inaugural committee and being general counsel to a national political committee? Well, being general counsel to the inaugural committee was really fun, Mari. You know how much I like to plan parties, and the <laughs> inaugural really is a party. <laughs> it's bet. a party with a lawyer. <laughs> right, so, right. You know, you put together all the contracts with the talent, and you put together the contracts renting the venues, and you think of it like starting a small business that's going to throw a massive party and raise massive amounts of money and spend it in 60 days. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> you build it up, you do it, and then you wrap it down. So that one was really fun because we won the presidency, obviously. So it was great to just plan the celebration. Right. And being general counsel to the Democratic National Committee was a familiar role for me because I grew up in a family of six children, Irish, Catholic, very rambunctious, very fractious. And we developed lots of rules in our family, like whoever took the last drop of milk out of the pitcher, we had a rule, whoever kills it, fills it. <laughs> or if you were going to have, there was one piece of something left and two people wanted it, one cuts, one chooses. So being general counsel of the Democratic National Committee is much like that. It's a very <laughs> fractious group, and you're always trying to devise rules to keep everybody together and keep everybody happy. So it's, it's tough, but fun and rewarding. Well, now I know why you're such a great mediator, right? <laughs> That's what you do when you're a Democratic Party official. You mediate. <laughs> yeah, and you had to mediate with uh, your siblings as a kid. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I've seen you mediate, in fact, when we were at that Liberty Alliance program in Chicago. I saw you as a fabulous mediator there, Well, too. that's right. There were The program you're talking about, there were a number of different industry players and law enforcement and advocates, both from the consumer community and the privacy community. And everyone had a lot of different interests about how do you achieve the balance between privacy and commerce. So trying to get everybody to find a, a middle ground that's good for consumers, that's good for uh, law enforcement to be able to protect and prosecute, and that's good for business. And, you know, it's not easy, but it is doable. Right. You know, you've been in, in, pre in consumer protection for a long time, even before dealing with the Federal Trade Commission, and you've practiced law in Washington, D.C. for a long time, too. Mm -hmm. So um, what was your area of focus when you first began practicing law? Well, I've always been, you know, law you can basically think of in three large categories. There's people who do transactional work, you know, buy and sell the companies, the corporate work, the securities work, all of that we would call corporate or transactional. And then there's people who are the, the people, that, the tough guys who try the cases. They're the litigators. And then there's the people who deal, deal in the regulatory arena, and that is, you know, where government intersects business. Right. And I've always been in the regulatory arena. I've done health care law. I do a lot of antitrust law. I do consumer protection. So my constant thread has been on the regulatory side. Often on the regulatory side, the government will investigate a company, and that's something that I deal with for alleged privacy violations or alleged antitrust violations or alleged consumer protection violations. And sometimes those evolve into litigation, so I do a bit of litigation, but primarily I'm a regulatory lawyer and always have been. 
when I was first with the uh, law firm and also working with the Democratic National Committee, I practiced a lot of election law, which is also a regulatory field. It's an area that's in federal campaigns highly regulated by the Federal Election Commission. So that's kind of my constant theme. If the government regulates it, I deal with it. Which was perfect for you to sit as a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had Betsy Broder on this show, and we had David Medine, who was also on our show last year. And But I, I, even though we've talked about the things that the Federal Trade Commission does, I still think that my audience needs to have uh, re-education about really what the tremendous work is that the, that the Federal Trade Commission sure. does. Sure. Can you explain a little bit about it? Yeah, the Federal Trade Commission is responsible in the United States for two arenas. One is antitrust, which they share jurisdiction with the Department of Justice. So whenever you're reading about big mergers, when Exxon merged with Mobile, when AOL merged with Time Warner, if you think of any of the big mergers, they are always reviewed by the government to make sure that they're consistent with the Sherman Act, which requires that there not be combinations that restrain trade, which is a fancy way of saying you don't want competitors to to merge and eliminate competition, because if there's no competition, prices will go up. So the government reviews uh, all of the mergers that are in industries when there are competitors that are merging. And the Federal Trade Commission does about half the merger reviews, and the Department of Justice does the other. So we share jurisdiction between those two agencies by industry. For example, the Federal Trade Commission does pharmaceutical mergers. The DOJ does um, uh, media mergers. So it goes you know, back and forth between the two, depending on what the topic is. But what the Federal Trade Commission also does is consumer protection. They are the only consumer protection uh, agency at the federal level. We have a consumer product safety commission at the federal level, which does the recall of products if there are exploding batteries or collapsing cribs. So they, they look at safety issues. But the Federal Trade Commission looks at consumer protection, and they have a variety of areas that they look at. They look at franchise um, issues because in, in the beginning of the franchising industry, there was a lot of concern that big corporations were taking advantage of small individuals who were trying to get franchises. So there's a franchising section. There's an advertising section that makes sure that people who make advertising claims can substantiate those claims. Right. And those cases are primarily related to claims around weight loss and dieting and aging products, but they can be around anything. So there's the advertising claims. Uh, There are also issues around things like privacy that are not quite as well defined in terms of where they fit in the agency, but again, making sure that people are doing what they say they're doing. So the Federal Trade Commission plays a very important role in both protecting competition on the antitrust side, which ultimately protects consumers, and directly protecting consumers. And, you know, they've really taken a a much greater role in privacy issues, whether it's the enforcement of the Fair Credit Reporting Act or, you know, dealing with the privacy issues and the security breaches and all sorts of things with identity theft. This has all just really exploded in recent years, hasn't it? It has, and it's funny, Mary. When I got to the Federal Trade Commission in late 1994, what I did was, you know, I, did, I don't think I knew you yet, but I called up all the smartest people that I'd ever met, regardless of what their background was, and I said, come to Washington for a day and talk about what the Federal Trade Commission should do at the close of this century and the beginning of the next. Should we stay in business? If we stay in business, what should we focus on? What should we focus on on the antitrust side, and what should we focus on on the consumer protection side? And after that day, during that day, it became very clear that the Internet, and this is pretty early, you know, this is late 94, the Internet was an emerging consumer issue, and privacy was the thing everyone kept coming back to as a consumer issue that nobody was paying attention to. And it's so funny when I kind of launched the FTC's initiative into examining privacy on the Internet, one of the other commissioners at the time said to me, privacy is not a consumer protection issue. We have no jurisdiction. (laughs) And my goodness, how things have changed in 10 years. (laughs) Incredible. Yeah, isn't that funny? 
It really is because now, um, you know, and let's talk a little bit about this. The idea of privacy in the information age. Maybe, again, there might be people who are driving by who have never even really thought about privacy except the right to be left alone. Right. And so we need to kind of explain to them what does privacy mean in the information age and what is the Federal Trade Commission dealing with in that kind of privacy? Well, there's a couple of different levels of it. You know, privacy in the information age, I think, really means that the traditional barriers to enterprises gathering large amounts of data about individuals have been eliminated. Before, Mari, if I wanted to know about you, I would have had to have gone to the courthouse and pulled your your public records on your land ownership. Right. I would have had to do Freedom of Information Act requests to see if you'd ever been prosecuted for anything. I would have had to check multiple court records, driver license records. I would have physically had to go to lots of places to gather a complete dossier on you. Right. What's happened in the information age is that all that information has become digital. And it, all of the barriers in terms of how expensive and time-consuming it was to gather and aggregate and distribute information about individuals have been removed. You can easily, with a click or two, find out enormous amounts of information about an individual that, well, previously might have been public, were certainly harder to aggregate and, and get access to. Right. So not only do you have that now, the ability to find out a lot of information about people, you also, if you're a Internet uh, provider, a service provider, or a content provider, you have the ability to really watch what consumers do on the Internet, sometimes a, in a very direct way, so you know that it is Christine or Mari that's on this site and buying right. this and moving right. here and moving there, and you can combine it with other data. Now, it's all a question of consumer expectation. You know, I used to always have this example in my mind, and that is you're on a plane flying somewhere, and it is your mother's birthday, and you've completely forgotten about it. And the phone on the plane, I don't know if they still do, but remember, planes used to have phones in the yeah, seat. Yeah, they still next do, them, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The phone rings, and you pick it up, and it's the florist. And the florist says, hi, Christine, I know that today is your mother's birthday, and you forgot to send her flowers this year. Would you like me to send her flowers? Right. Now, you can have one of two reactions. You can be horrified that, you're, that a florist that you know, use knows how to find you, knows it's your mother's birthday, everything else. And this would all be assuming that you've bought a plane ticket with one credit card and you use the same credit card. But there is a way that you could imagine that right. this could happen. Right. So your reaction is either you're thrilled to death because your mother's going to kill you. You forgot right. her birthday. Or you're horrified because someone has tracked you down and has this information about you. Right. So right. it all goes back to very clearly explaining to consumers what information you're gathering about them, what you plan to do with it, and getting their consent. Right, right. Well, that leads us really to the... Um, Fair information practices. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because I know you're really involved in in the organization, the OECD. Why don't right. you to explain a little bit about the fair right. information practices? Sure. Fair information practices are principles that have been developed over time. It started, you know, well before the internet with the idea of what information should you collect about people and what should you do with it. And the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Development and Cooperation in Europe, developed a set of principles. But actually, in this country in the 1970s, the old Health, Education, and Welfare Department, now HHS, did, had a privacy commission and developed principles around um, privacy and what information you should be collecting around individuals. And in the United States, we've come, you know, basically to a set of best practices around information collection, which involve the following principles. And that is, you notify people about what information you're collecting. That's the notice principle. Mm -hmm. We have a principle we call choice. You give them the opportunity to say yes or no, you can collect this information about me. In Europe, it's not called choice. In Europe, it's called consent. And that right. is, you don't do it unless you get the consent. So it's notice choice in the U.S., consent in Europe. Act Let's just kind of clarify that, that mm -hmm. what that means is, mm -hmm. is opt-in versus opt-out. When you get privacy notices in the mail, 
the, com the companies allow you to opt out of having your information sold to third parties. Correct. That's opt out. In other words, they can sell it unless you take an affirmative action. Whereas in Europe, in, 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 in California actually for third parties, the, uh, the rule is, is that before a company can sell to another company, you're, you know, a third party non-affiliate, um, they must get your affirmative consent. In other words, it's not an opt-out, it's an opt-in. That's so right. That's so like, that's like Europe. That's what you're talking about, right? That's exactly right, getting okay. affirmative consent. That's exactly right. And then the next principle is that you must give access to the individual of, um, about whom you have information to the information that you have about them. This is a very controversial principle. In Europe, the access principle is used to reinforce what the Europeans have as is a data minimalization principle. That is, don't collect more data from anyone than you need to fulfill the transaction and get rid of it when you're done. Because in Europe, you're required to give what's called the data subject or the individual full access to all the data you have about them. So the access principle, which, you know, it can be expensive to provide people access, the access principle in Europe reinforces the data minimalization principle, which is don't collect more data than you need and get rid of it when you're done. Right. And, and I think that people can understand in our country with their credit reports, we have the ability to access our credit reports. That's right. And what access the principle in privacy is trying to push that beyond just credit reports right. and let people have access to information about them that might be used in substantive decision making. Right. And especially when we're trying to buy a home or, or get a car or get an, get an employment, you know, get a new job. Right. If we want to know, we want to be able to see our credit reports. And if there's errors, we want to be able to correct them. Which is the next principle, right. the ability to correct the information about you. And then the last principle is security, keeping data that you have about someone secure. So those are, are things that we're looking at in, in terms of the, the right to control the information that's being bought and sold and shared and whatever. Right? Isn't yeah, that what the, the... So we want to hopefully have, and I know one of the things that you've pushed for is ethical and appropriate use of, mm -hmm. of our information and, and our, especially our, our sensitive information about us. Well, that's exactly right. I think, you know, when you really talk to consumers, it, it, they do a lot of surveying work, and the question is always, do you care about privacy? Well, that's like motherhood and apple pie. Everybody <laughs> cares about privacy. Right, right. But what does it really mean? You know, people will sell their soul for 10 cents off a hamburger. <laughs> in the practice, I'm not sure that there's the same level of sensitivity as there is in theory. Clearly, people care when information that they provide in one context is in their view, used against them in another context. Right. So, for example, if I go to a smoking cessation program that my employer offers, right. I don't want that information transmitted to my health insurance company. Exactly. Because there's probably a... If I'm researching, you know, AIDS and HIV on the Internet, I probably don't want my health insurance company to know about that. Right. And, yeah. and if you have your health insurance information or your health care information, you don't want that shared with your life insurance company because they may not decide not to give you that life insurance policy. Or maybe not my employer. You're, I may be dealing with, you know, a mental health right. issue and I don't want my employer to know about it. Right. Or so the lender to buy to even get a house, right? Exactly. So it, it, there's a category of sensitive information, which in generally in this country is described as information that's related to health or medical issues, financial information, and information from and about children. People tend to, to hold that information in a very high regard, and it's very personal, and it's very sensitive, and it should not be used for any purpose other than which it's provided. Now, whether or not, you know, my surfing habits on the Internet, if it's not tied to me as a person, but it's tied to my browser, and it's used to bring me ads that are going to be more interesting to me, things I care about. Some people might object to that, but most people don't. So you know, I, I don't object to it when it's a company that I already do business with. Mm -hmm. If I do business with Amazon and they send me a note and says, hey, you're going to like this brand new book that came out on privacy by Christine right. or something, then I, I'm going to think, oh, well, that's, that's pretty neat. I mean, they they're care about me. But if some company I don't know 
says, hey, we know that you've been reading A, B, C, and D, and we think you should read this, that feels pretty insidious to me. Well, what about when you're surfing around the Internet and you're just going to various, you know, different uh, Internet sites that offer mortgages, and all of a sudden you get a banner ad that says, hey, you know, we're union first and we have this great mortgage, click here. Well, I'm I'm such a skeptic that I'd be really scared that it might be some kind of fishing thing. So, well, <laughs> so I probably wouldn't works. go to it. You know what I mean? I, I would be really scared to do that. I like to only go to websites that I really trust and yeah. know about. So yeah. I'm probably not a good person to ask like that. But I don't know. Lloyd, what would you do? I think he's been so influenced by me that he probably wouldn't do it either. <laughs> so you're, you're asking the wrong person, but I don't know. Tim, what would you do? If you saw a banner ad, would you do something like that? Would you just... No, go to it. I have like four virus protections, so sure. Oh, you would? Okay. Yeah, I have he, like four layers. Okay, <laughs> so he would. He, but I don't know if virus protection would catch, would take care of you if virus, you was fishing. Virus, all of it. Yeah. 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 Well, see, again, this is kind of what you were talking about, Christine, which is people have different levels of sensitivity. Exactly. And if you've been a victim of identity theft, like I was, you're going to be more sensitive than someone who is maybe younger. They haven't experienced this. They are very much into technology and, and figure that they have virus protectors or whatever, mm-hmm. like Tim is talking about. So, so you know, it's a different level of sensitivity. But I want to introduce you again because we have been talking like crazy, and people might be driving by and say, who is this brilliant woman <laughs> that is talking to Mari? And we are talking to Christine Barney. She is an attorney and a privacy expert. She is with the law firm of Hogan and Hartston in Washington DC and joining us this evening. So let's let's go on and talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've done in helping. You were very instrumental in founding several privacy self-regulation associations mm-hmm. like the National Advertising in- Initiative and the Online Privacy Alliance. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about those? Sure. The Online Privacy Alliance was an attempt in late 97 early 98 <laughs> to convene the major players in e-commerce to sit down. And at that time, there were no ground rules about the collection of information on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So we tried to come up with a set of rules of the road that everybody would agree that they would adhere to and that they would require their business partners to adhere to. And it was, at the time, you know, largely successful. Everybody agreed that they... At that point, Mari, there weren't privacy policies. So that was kind of the first wave of privacy policies because these companies all agreed that they needed to tell people what they were doing and they needed to tell them in a way that was easier to find, read, and understand. Right. And they needed to give people choices about what was done with their data unrelated to the transaction. You know, everybody uses the data to fulfill a transaction or an interaction, right, right, right. but unrelated to the transaction. And they developed standards for security, and they developed standards for data retention. And it was really, in part at the time, you know, the government was rumbling around that they were going to perhaps legislate data collection on the Internet. And this was still very early in the life of e-commerce. Right. And you know, I have always believed that government should intervene in the marketplace when the marketplace fails to achieve a societally agreed upon goal. Right, right. And in 97, it wasn't clear whether or not the consumers would de- demand privacy and the marketplace would provide it. So right. my view was let's give this a little time. Let's develop some self regulatory practices, see if they get widely adopted, and then let's see where the market is. So uh-huh. that was what we did with the Online Privacy Alliance. What we did, and it was a good start. It I was mean, a great start. It absolutely set the groundwork. And, you know, you can have a very legitimate discussion about where we are today and whether or not self-regulation is effective on its own, whether or not something more is needed, if so, what. But, you know, it goes back to kind of a fundamental conversation, and that is, is privacy a societally agreed-upon objective? Right. And is the market failing to meet it? Well, when we see so much identity theft, and we see that that it is based on the you know um, buying and selling and sharing and and stealing of of personal information and personal and sensitive information, then then you know we do see that there is a need. There's you know what I'm saying that that is a clear indication because uh, identity theft is the fallout from the lack of some. Um, 
oversight for privacy. Right. Well, and you're far more an expert on identity theft than I am, Mari, but my sense is that the, the vast amount of identity theft, which is different from identity fraud, right? Well, again, it depends. I guess the we have to define what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, identity theft is when your identity is stolen and and used to perpetrate a series of frauds. Right, right. And whether credit card lending, you know, money, however you get it, checks, whatever. An uh-huh. individual's identity is is malappropriated or misappropriated by another individual or an enterprise. Identity fraud, for me, is a little bit different, and that's when someone goes into a financial institution's database and steals 5,000 credit card numbers and then tries to get cash off the credit card numbers, and then that's the end of it. Right, I mean, right. that's okay. damaging, but that's okay. not identity theft. Okay, yeah, that's credit card fraud. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah fraud. That, that, that's annoying for everybody, and it's a loss for the companies. But it's not like total identity takeover. Total identity theft. Yeah. So yeah. my understanding, and, and you would certainly have a better view on this than I would, is that the, the, the majority of identity theft is in one way or another related to the absolute profusion of data that is aggregated by um, credit bureaus and the, the offers, the extensions, the, the, the rampant extensions of credit. Right. It's, it is. We're in, you know, an easy credit society. And it's not just credit, unfortunately. It's also criminal identity theft and identity theft used for, to get free health care or identity theft to get, um, you know, to get a job. So whenever we have all of these mega databases of sensitive information that identifies you and it is somehow uh, available so easily, that's when it can get into the hands of those who would misappropriate, whether right. whether it's an you know a dirty insider, which we know that happens a lot of times in these companies as unscrupulous employees can take it, mm-hmm. or if it's the bad guys who do these security breaches, whatever well, it also, is. Well, yeah. it's also the the loose practices of the companies that have these huge exactly. databases. It makes it easy. So while there is an absolute privacy component to solving this problem, I think there's also a component of regulating those enterprises that collect large amounts of data. Exactly. Because, you know, there is a reason credit costs less in the United States than anywhere else in the world, and that's because we have really good information upon which to make credit decisions. Exactly. But on the other hand, it's a very lucrative business. Mm-hmm. So those that are in the business, the data brokers, they're, their incentive, their financial incentive is to get more information and to figure out new ways to monetize it. And that's probably what needs to be regulated in terms of identity theft. You know, that's a really good point. I know last year, and, and you're in, so heavily involved in watching legislation over there in Washington, D.C., and I don't know if you remember the bill that um, California, that Florida Senator Bill Nelson introduced to try and have some oversight over the d- various data brokers. It was right. S five hundred, and mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering where, since you deal with all these large companies, and and some of them have, have had to step up to the plate, like Choice Point. They've really, you know, since they did have the problems that they have had, they've done a, a terrific job in really trying to remedy those issues. Right. And we've got you know the the major players like Axiom and, and LexisNexis who also experience breaches. Um, what are your thoughts about having a, a system of oversight for the data brokers, since we're talking about that right now? Well, I absolutely think that, that that's a large source of the problems and that we do need a more robust regulatory and enforcement system about what data can be collected, who has access to it. I also think that you know, individuals ought to have the ability to place credit freezes on their actual credit reports so that if they don't want data about them brokered, they, they can opt out of that system and then give their permission if they're applying for a mortgage or a credit card or something else. There's far too much aggregation and dissemination of data about individuals without their knowledge or consent, and we really do need to rein that in. 
And there's no, and I do think that's a failure of the market. There's yeah. no market incentive for the data brokers to do that. Although, like as you've mentioned, companies like ChoicePoint and Axiom really are stepping up to the plate and trying to create some best practices. But they have a lot of competitors that aren't. Right, and I think that's what the whole point. Like when you had really, um, you know, encouraged self-regulation, which. You know, on, on first blush, it sounds great, and you've got some really ethical companies that really try to step up to the plate, but you've got all these other players out there in the wild west of the Internet and all over the world that really aren't stepping up to the plate. So I think that's when reg- self-regulation doesn't work. I think that's right, and it, it's, you know, if you can, it's always a good thing to start with self-regulation because then you see where the holes are. Right. And I think a lot of the self-regulation that you helped to institute has really been incorporated into the laws. Absolutely. I mean, you see that in the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. That was all, you know, the culmination of a couple of years of work on what legitimate companies that are marketing to kids ought to be doing. Why don't you explain that? We have people who are driving by who have small and mid-sized businesses in Orange County, Newport Beach, uh, some of the areas around here. And I, they need to know that everybody is really subject to these federal laws. So could you explain a little bit about the online children's uh, privacy yeah, protection? Yeah, okay. It's, you know, it really grew out of, there was a um, website when I was in the Federal Trade Commission in the mid-90s, and this website at the time had, you know, the most popular games aimed at the 9- and 10-year-old crowd. And I, at the time, had 9- and 10-year-old children. So Uh-oh. I knew about it. And, um, <laughs> you had a, 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 a real concern about this beyond what other people might exactly. know. Exactly. And in order to get to the game, to play the game, which the kids loved, you had to answer a series of questions. And they were very simple yes-no questions. But the questions were, do you live with Mommy or Daddy or both. Uh-huh. Do you visit mommy's parents? Do you visit daddy's parents? Do you go to church? Do you go to mommy's church? Do you go to daddy's church? And they were all questions designed clearly to create a marketing base to market to these, you know, kids or their families. Right. And it was appalling, Mari, because yeah. these kids were going to this website with no parental involvement and answering highly personal, you know, does mommy work? does daddy work what kind of car does daddy drive exactly exactly (laughs) so you know that led to a very robust discussion about there's really two sides to this coin both collecting personal information from children under 13 and marketing to children under 13 right so where we as the federal trade commission came out was look if you are going to collect personal information knowingly from children 13 and under, and if you're going to market to them based on that per, uh, personal information, you must have their parents' consent. Right. Period. Full stop. So Not how, do, okay. how do you get that? Now, that, that seems to me like that would be such a challenge when you're advising companies about what they should do because they have um, maybe games for kids. How how in the world are they? You going to know? How are you going to authenticate sure. that the parents really did consent? Well, the first thing you're trying to do, really, I mean, this is a little bit of social engineering. But yes. the first thing you're trying to do is to get these companies. It's not a problem to have you know sites targeted to kids with marketing and all that kind of stuff. It's only if you're collecting personally identifiable information. From right, them. right. So you're really in the first instance you're trying to dissuade companies from getting personally identifiable information from companies. Right. So, now, so is that your advice first? Try not to get it if you don't it, need it? Just Well, yeah. exactly. What ended up happening is that very large, high-brand, high-trust companies like Disney and Nickelodeon and others that run subscription services that you had at those days anyway, you paid for, right? they probably could get a parent's consent. And the, a good example was Disney. At that time, and I don't know whether or not they still do this, but at that time, there was a Disney Kids Birthday Club. And you could sign up, and it was a, part of a subscription service, so you had to have a credit card to join. And, mm-hmm. you know, teenagers will steal their parents' credit cards, but 
not usually to join Disney. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So you had to sign up with a credit card. Mm -hmm. And if you signed up with for the subscription service and paid for it, you could enter your child to receive a special birthday greeting from Mickey Mouse or whatever on their birthday. Well, you know, when you've got the parents' credit card and the parents sending in a fax and signing, yes, this is my kid and I want you to do this, as we say, that's good enough for government work. I mean, this was, you know, pre the authentication technologies that we have today. Right, right. So there is a way, particularly if you're a subscription service, that you can authenticate uh, reasonably well that there's probably an adult involved. On the other hand, you know, I really push companies all the time. Why do you need personally identifiable information from an under 13-year-old? If you've got a website that's clearly targeted at the tween crowd, don't get their PII, their personally identifiable information. Right, right. You don't need it. And I think that's the huge issue is that I have seen, and I know you've seen this because you advise companies every day, but they collect so much information that they don't need, right. and they keep it far beyond what any of the regulators say they have to keep it, and that just puts them more at risk. It, absolutely. You know, you won't, don't want to be a, at risk for a data breach. Don't collect and keep information longer than you need it. Exactly, which leads me to the next question. Data breaches. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that there have been, what, almost 100 million people who've been victims of security breaches, you know, in the last two weeks. And we hadn't gotten any letters like this, but we've, hear, we've heard of, you know, myriad people getting letters. But we within two weeks, Lloyd got one and then I got one. He got one from Chase and then I got one from um, the Bank of America when my uh, my premier banker uh, had her car broken into and the laptop was stolen. So, you know, within two weeks, we just got these uh, data breach letters. And, uh, of course, I help work on the data breach notification law in California. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking, all right, so we've had all of these data breaches. And you have to deal with all these companies who have to deal with the, what is it, 35 data breach laws now? Are there Mm -hmm. more than that? Yep, it's in the mid-30s. Yeah. So what is your thought, I mean, about, I, I know that... You have to advise companies on what they should do and also advise companies on what kind of legislation they might want to help support. So what is your thought? Well, on a very high level, I mean, you know, I think that this data breach notification legislation is just nonsense because in point of fact, all it has done is shine a spotlight on the fact there is a problem. And, and that's good. But it doesn't in any way help a potential victim. It doesn't in any way impose liability on a company. I mean, what I get very tired of here in Washington is hearing, you know, data breach, data breach, data breach as a panacea. It's nonsense. If you want to stop data breaches, impose financial liability on the companies who create the conditions that allow them to happen. That sounds Nothing. good, but, but that won't happen in Congress because there's, first of all, we don't even have, look what's happened when we had the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act. Mm-hmm. For all of the violations that really hurt victims, they have taken away a private right of action. There is no private right of action, really, in when yep. if you're a victim of identity theft w- with regard to various uh, provisions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And, and we're just not going to get that. Well, maybe if we get a new Congress, Mari. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But what I'm, what I'm thinking of in, you know, California's security breach uh, notification law really made a huge difference in terms of, of and i got to ask you this, from other attorneys that I've asked, they told me that because of the security breach notification law laws, that the companies are now at least paying attention to greater protection of the personally identifiable information and to security. Are you finding that? Well, you know, my clients are generally very large, well-established clients to begin with, and they're companies that I think have always taken data security seriously. Well, that's because they have you as an attorney. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think so. So they, you know, they do take data security seriously. But, you know, even the best blue chip companies that take data security seriously, laptops get stolen. Right. So why aren't they encrypting? Well, they are. I mean, many of them are. 
Because under California law, that's that's the that's the carrot. If you encrypt, if if you have unauthorized uh, acquisition acquisition right. of computerized information, but you encrypt the data, you have no duty to notify. That's exactly right. Although that's not the standard universally. So what happens is that if a company has a data breach, whether or not the information is encrypted, more and more companies now just go ahead and notify. Which Again, I think that the notification has really put the spotlight on the problem of how much data is at risk, and that's a good thing. Yes. But I don't agree that it has encouraged companies to take a higher standard of care, or it has. In, it certainly hasn't helped victims. I mean, well, so it's helped victims in this way, and this is kind of how I see it from dealing with victims, is that especially in states where they can do a security freeze, mm-hmm. for example, in California, a, a non-victim who gets a breach letter has the right to pay $10 to the credit reporting agencies and put a security freeze on their credit report. But and they the, wouldn't uh, know to do that. But and, you the know, burden is still on the victim. Oh, I, I agree. mean, why yeah. is it that if you get, if your data gets stolen, why isn't the burden on the company who had the theft? Why shouldn't they have to take all of those steps? Oh, I agree. But it's just not happening right now. I'm, I'm 100% in your corner, believe me. I, I think the reality is right now, though, is until we get maybe a new Congress that is willing to be more consumer protection oriented, we have to do some things that will at least allow potential victims to put up some barriers. That's the well, problem. Well, as I said, I think that the, the breach notification laws have helped put a spotlight on an ongoing problem. I'm skeptical that they either in some way incent companies to be more careful because I think that breaches still happen at the same rate they did before the laws, and it just infuriates me that the burden is still completely on the potential victim. Okay, so let's talk about this. There have been um, quite a few uh, uh, legislative proposals in the past year and a half, right, past two years, about security breach and security freeze. So what would be, if you had your druthers, what would the legislation look like that should be introduced in January of 2007? Well, I would create a, a scheme of statutory damages so you don't have to prove harm. See, that's one of the problems when you try and bring a lawsuit, as you know, is unless you can prove demonstrable harm, there's no damages, so then there's no uh, financial incentive for the companies to behave differently. So if you take away the need to prove actual damages and create what you and I know is statutory damages, which is a law that says if X happens, you will pay X. So you create a scheme that says if you do not use commercially reasonable best standards to secure data which you control, you will be liable at $11,000 per occurrence per breach. Okay, I so, don't think so. Would this be a private right of action, or would this be by the Federal Trade Commission? You know, I'm ambivalent about that. Private rights of action, you and I both know, individuals rarely pursue them. Plaintiff's lawyers pursue them. Yeah, it and, has to be a class action. Yeah, and, you know, that can have some impact. I mean, there have right. been a lot of securities class actions, which has changed the way that business gets done, which have been good. But there can also be a lot of frivolous class actions. So I, I'm still ambivalent about whether or not there's a private right of action or it's government enforced. It certainly should be enforced by not only the Federal Trade Commission, but the 50 state attorneys general right. to start. Right. And I'm a big believer in incrementalism. Start there, and if that's effective, okay. If it's not, add a private right of action. You know, the Federal Trade Commission has done some really wonderful things in the past, I'd say, three, four years in terms of taking action for privacy, for example, when they find the choice point, uh, fifteen mil- well, $10 million right. for, you know, the uh, failure to, to really, you know, authenticate their business partners that they right. were going, that they were giving credit reports and all sorts of information, right. and then they put $5 million away for victims. Um, so that, that, I think, was a little bit using the stick and, and calling um, the companies to, to take things seriously. There have been a lot of these kinds of actions by the Federal Trade Commission. I would like, you know, before I really got into understanding privacy, I didn't even know 
exactly how the Federal Trade Commission would take an action. Can you explain that? I think it's really interesting about how they have unfair versus deceptive. Right. Could you explain that? Because I think, you know, especially the students that we have here, we are sitting in the University of California, and privacy is becoming such a huge issue. A lot of people getting into that career. It would be really interesting for them to understand what do you mean by unfair versus deceptive and, and kind of giving us an example. Well, sure, and you stop me if I'm getting too in the weeds because okay. this is very inside baseball, as we say. Okay. The Federal Trade Commission is authorized under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act to prosecute unfair and deceptive acts and practices in trade or commerce. What happened in the 1970s was the Federal Trade Commission attempted to regulate Saturday morning TV advertising. Remember all the little kids sit in front of the TV on Saturday morning and all the cereal manufacturers advertise on the cartoons. Right. Federal Trade Commission thought that the kids weren't capable of differentiating between the ads and the actual cartoons. So they undertook this whole scheme to regulate advertising on Saturday morning. And they said it was unfair to be advertising to these kids. Hmm. Well, the country went crazy. There were editorials in the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times calling the Federal Trade Commission the national nanny. Congress cut off their appropriations. So unfairness as a theory to prosecute people for behavior fell way out of favor in the 1970s. And the FTC really focused on on prosecuting people who engaged in deceptive practices. Now, deception is generally an affirmative, although it could be an omission, but an affirmative misrepresentation of the truth. So they prosecute you if you lie is the easiest way to think about it. Now, when we began the whole privacy um, self-regulation, the idea was that companies had to put up a privacy policy. And if they didn't do what they said they were going to do, mm-hmm. they would be liable under deception. Right. But there was an interesting hole, because if you said nothing, you really weren't liable under deception. Mm. That's when the Federal Trade Commission resurrected the unfairness idea. So even if you didn't say affirmatively you were going to do one thing and do another, right. if what you were in fact doing was so egregious to offend the senses, it was probably unfair and could probably be prosecuted as unfair. And that's how unfairness came back into vogue. Now, for your law students out there, they can go to uh, my law firm's website and there'll be a whole explanation of the legal standards for prosecuting unfairness and for prosecuting deception, but I'm not sure your drive-time listeners want to hear that. (laughs) But but if, if, if even, you know, some of the companies that are out here, if they promise something and then they do not, you know, fulfill that promise on their website or any of their privacy policies, and there is real harm to consumers, that could be considered unfair, too, if there's harm to consumers. Isn't that right? Right. Unfairness has to have harm associated with it. Unfairness has three prongs. It has to be... and one of the three prongs is that there has to be harm, it has to be unavoidable, right. and it has to have no countervailing benefit. Deception, on the other hand, doesn't have to, you don't have to prove a harm to prosecute deception. You simply have to prove what somebody said was not true. Uh-huh. So they're really two different you know, legal theories to go after someone. I remember one of the cases recently, like Eli Lilly, isn't, didn't they um, promise not to share information that they got from people who had, I think it was like antipsychotic drugs or some kind of psychological drugs, and then by mistake, they shared it it in an email. They put everybody's email address and and said, oh, you need Prozac or something, and everybody's email was on there. I mean, that was one of the ones that the Federal Trade Commission took. I I don't remember the exact facts, but that's the kind of thing that they do, which really is protecting consumers, and that was clearly a privacy invasion is for everybody to know that you're on Prozac or or whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So so let me ask you another thing, because you advise companies. I mean, these companies are trying to do business online. How are we, and we don't have a lot of time, but I think this is a a huge issue because all of us do business online. Lloyd says we have six minutes. So, (laughs) but how do you advise them to act so that customers will trust them and trust 
being able to do business with them. That's, that's a really rough issue now with, with uh, web beacons and cookies and spam and everything. I think people are a little bit um, kind of timid sometimes to do business. They say, you know, Mari, is it safe for me to do business online? Well, there's a couple things. But, you know, for a consumer, is it safe to do business online? The first thing is, generally, if you're doing business with a big branded company that you know online or offline, it's generally safe. You may not, you know, your credit card number is unlikely, unless there's a breakdown to, in the system, to be stolen when you're buying books on Amazon or when you're ordering something from, you know, Target online. So if you know the company, it goes back, Mari, you, you and I have talked about this before. Privacy, when people talk about privacy, there's really four different things that they're talking about. Because privacy is often a shorthand for trust. Right. And that is, you know, the four issues are authenticity. Right. How do you know who you're dealing with is real? That's the scary part on the, you know, on the Internet, right? And absolutely. So authenticity is one. Recourse and liability. What happens if something goes wrong? Right. Who's liable? How do I get recourse? Security. How do I know that the transaction is secure, that my data is secure? And then privacy. Are right. they doing with their, my information what they say they're doing? Right. So I think a consumer really has to take all four issues into account. I do a lot of business uh, on the Internet. And, you know, I'm always looking for, first of all, I always do read privacy policies. And secondly, I'm always looking for, you know, signals. If it's not a branded company that I know, I'm always looking for things like, do they have a trustee seal? Right. Do they have a VeriSign seal? Are they on biz rate? Right. You know, there's a number of clues that you can look for so that you can assure yourself that you're making a reasonably good uh, estimate of, of how secure this, this um, is. And then I also am very careful about what credit cards I use online, and I look for the credit cards that are going to give me the most protection in case there is a problem. And use a credit card instead of a debit card. Absolutely. Because the debit never. card, yeah, I would never use a debit card online because you're giving access to your checking account. That's exactly right. So and you only so, want to use a credit card, and you want right. to use a credit card that has really good policies. Right, right. Well, Lloyd says we have just a few minutes left, and oh, I'm going to have to have you back on again real soon, <laughs> Christine, because there are so many questions that I still wanted to ask you, but I, I want to go a little bit and kind of finalize it with this. Um your expertise has been so important, and you've been so creative with, you know, technology and privacy. What do you think is going to happen so that we can authenticate people easier? Oh, I think there's a revolution coming in authentication technology. Right. You know, what we've got to do, Mari, is be very careful that we safeguard privacy as authentication becomes more robust. I would imagine in the next 10 years, you and I will not have to wait on lines in airports because we'll be able to pass our thumb over a screen or, you know, look into a little camera and the retina of our eye will authenticate who we are. So biometrics I, is going to be the answer. I think biometrics is coming. I think that there are, you know, you need different levels of authentication. Look, if I'm moving money between my Morgan Stanley account and my back Bank of America account, I want the highest level of authentication. Right. But, you know, if I'm ordering a book from Amazon, yeah, you just I don't need your that credit card. level. Right, right, yeah, right. that level. So I think that we're going to see uh, very robust uh, le offerings on authentication. Yep. And I think that for the most sensitive and secure transactions, we're probably moving to biometric, which in and of itself creates huge privacy issues that are going to have to be addressed. Well, Lloyd says we have just a couple minutes left. I'd love you to give your website again, and I want you to promise me that in the new year that you will come back on so we can go over some of the other questions that I've been dying to ask you. Absolutely. Well, if anybody has any, any follow-up and they want to look it up, we're on www.h, as in Hogan, h, as in Hartson, law, www.hhlaw dot com and look under our internet section or our privacy section and you'll see lots of material and also they can even look you up absolutely. and see some of the great articles that you've written as well so absolutely thank you so much christine for taking the time i'm just thrilled that you would uh, join us and i hope that you will join us again next year well mari thank you for having me and thank you for all your leadership on this very important issue we will talk soon thank you thanks You've Bye. Been, bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. 
You um, can join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. And also go to our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. And there you will find all of our previous interviews. You can just click on them, uh, live audio streaming. Also, you can download podcasts and subscribe to our podcasts and see who's coming up on our show in the future. And also, you can even write us emails with all of your questions about privacy. I want to thank Lloyd for being a great engineer and thank our intern, Tim, for joining us tonight. And we will see you hopefully next week at 5 p.m. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.